Today on Something You Should Know, some fascinating facts that might at least win you a drink in a bar bet. And it is strange and amazing what influences the foods we like to eat. For example, we do not like foods much if they point towards us. So imagine you've got a slice of pizza or a slice of chocolate cake. If you orient it and serve it to somebody with a pointy end to the middle of the cake pointing towards them, they'll give that cake a lower rating than if you turn it around so it's pointing away. Also, does drinking water really keep your skin looking younger? And how to shoot better video that people actually want to watch. I always tell people, don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes. You know, if you're shooting people's faces and you can't actually see what their eyes look like, you're missing all the emotion and the communication and the feeling of the video because you're just too far away. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often-once-in-a-while-try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now. And support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. As you might imagine, being that I'm the host of this podcast, I like learning, gathering, fascinating facts and things. And so I'm going to start the program off today with some fascinating facts that, if nothing else, could probably, some of them could probably win you a free drink in a bar bet now and again, if you remember them. So let's start with, if you were to stand in downtown Detroit and start walking south, due south for as long as it takes, what's the first foreign country you would come to? The answer is Canada, and it would only take you a few minutes. If you were to spell out the numbers, starting with one, you know, one, two, three, four, five, on what number would you first encounter the letter A? And the answer is 1,000. There's only one nation in the world that begins with the letter A, but does not end with the letter A, and that is Afghanistan. All mammals can jump except one, although I've heard some recent information that this may not be true anymore, but supposedly elephants cannot jump. Why are the staircases in firehouses circular? Well, here's, this is interesting. 
Early fire trucks were pulled by horses that were stabled downstairs while the firefighters lived upstairs. The horses learned to walk up regular stairs, so the stairs were changed to circular to keep the horses from coming up. And that is something you should know. The decisions you make about what food to eat, what you think of the food you eat, how much of it you eat, and how much you like what you eat, aren't entirely based on the food itself. Your other senses come into play, probably in ways you never realized. In fact, when you hear how easily you are influenced, I think you'll find it amazing. Charles Spence is the head of the Cross-Modal Research Laboratory at the University of Oxford, and he's done a remarkable amount of research into this. His book is called Gastrophysics, The New Science of Eating. He's on the line from Salzburg, Austria. Welcome, Charles. So right off the bat here, just just give me an example of how easily we're influenced into believing food is better than it actually may be. Um, so one thing um, is the weight of the cutlery, kind of the knife and fork or spoon that you hold. Um, we have done research in uh, hotel restaurants where half the diners have been eating a dish with light kind of canteen knife and fork. The other half of the diners in the same restaurant on the same day were served exactly the same food, but with a heavy uh, knife and fork. Uh, and, and those who had something heavy in their hands rated the food as better uh, and were willing to pay more for exactly the same dish. And that's something we see in lots of situations, be it heavy glasses, heavy bowls, heavy cutlery, do seem to help uh, enhance our experience um, of food and drink more than we realize. Intuitively, maybe sometimes chefs say, ah, oh, now you mention it. Yeah, I guess I kind of knew that sort of, but rarely do you have the, um, the kind of evidence to back it up. And these intuitions sometimes seem silly and, uh, and strange, and so you don't put too much weight in them, if you'll excuse the pun. Other examples are uh, things like um, changing the color of the lighting. Um, and we've done experiments with over 3,000 people uh, where we gave them a glass of red wine and a black tasting glass so they couldn't see the contents, put them in a room, uh, asked them to say how fruity or fresh that wine was under normal white lighting, then flicked the light bulbs to red and asked them to do the same thing again, tell me how fruity or fresh, how much you'd like that drink. Uh, and all of a sudden, we see a sort of 15% increase in um, fruitiness uh, and liking simply by turning red lights on. And then when we switch the lighting to green instead, uh, suddenly the wine starts tasting just that little bit more sour instead and is liked a little bit less. Same wine, same glass, same person, but simply the lighting in the background are having an impact on what we taste. That for some people, when they experience this, we're going like, wow, uh, I never believed it would work, or, or, or even those who thought it would work sometimes were surprised by just how immediately, when the light color changed, uh, the taste in the glass uh, also changed. I wonder if, and maybe you looked at this, if you tell people what you're doing mm-hmm. and, then, and then do the experiment again, it, in other yep. words, does the knowledge of knowing that these things are affecting you then make them less effective? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a, a good question and something that we do uh, worry about. Um, and I think it's definitely not the whole story. Um, so maybe we know even now from, from research on the placebo effect uh, that knowing that you're taking a placebo medication can on occasion uh, help reduce symptoms and pain, um, even though you're, you know you're being in some sense tricked. Um, in our work, sometimes when we do the experiments very carefully in the lab, 
I can think of examples where we change the color of fruit drinks and you'll be coming to the lab and you'll see maybe 180 different colored liquids in glasses and you have to taste each one. But before you taste any of them, we say explicitly, these colors are meaningless. They're kind of randomly assigned. We just, they have no bearing on what you're about to taste. Keep your eyes open so you don't spill the drink, but ignore the color as best you can, knowing it's not informative. And yet, even when you know the color is there to, um, to mislead you, uh, you find it impossible just to focus on the taste. I guess in this case, because uh, our brains are kind of geared up uh, to try and predict the taste, the flavor, and the nutritional uh, value properties of, of foods that we see. And then whenever we see a drink in a glass, the color is already you know, within the blink of an eye, setting expectations automatically. And those expectations then kind of help to anchor the experience when we actually do come to taste. What about sound, music, noise, that kind of thing? How does that affect us? Um, in again, a lot more than, than most of us realize, and this has been a big uh, part of our research for the last decade now, starting with uh, work looking at the sound of food itself, so showing how if you, if you boost certain frequencies when people bite into potato chips, uh, they'll perceive them as crunchier and fresher than if you cut out certain uh, sound frequencies. And from there, we've gone on to the sound of packaging, why do you know, potato chips come, often come in such noisy packets, and does that sound affect the taste? Yes, it does. And from there onto the sounds of making the sounds of, you know, coffee machines. Do they set expectations about the taste of the brew you're about to receive? Uh, they do too. And out from there through to the sounds of the environment in which we eat and drink. So what about loud noises? Unpleasant, you know, distracting loud noises that you often hear in restaurants? Kind of coming out of a lot of uh, northeast USA restaurants, in fact, where, you know, music's played very loud in the kitchens to help sort of um, preparation time pass. And some of those chefs are thinking, hmm, if we like this music in the kitchen, maybe our diners will like it in the, in, in the restaurant as well. And when you put that really loud music together with the kind of the trendy decor these days where, where curtains and cushions and carpets are out and they're replaced by kind of hard, reflective surfaces, you, you find um, if you take your sound level meter into these restaurants that you might be exposed to over 100 decibels of noise, so loud that it's probably having detrimental impact on, on the long-term serving staff, and also so loud that it's suppressing our ability to, to taste and smell the food, and hence you have to add more sugar and more salt. Um, and you see that in restaurants, but you also see it, um, there's one chapter in the book all about uh, uh, eating in the air, and there in an airplane, you're probably exposed to about 80 to 85 decibels of engine noise. And that too suppresses uh, uh, sweet, suppresses our ability to taste salt, but for some mysterious reason enhances the taste of umami, the taste of tomatoes. And that's, I think, why so many people uh, go for a tomato juice or Bloody Mary uh, in the air. And finally, I th what we're seeing now um, is this whole world of sort of sonic seasoning, it's called. Um, which is the idea that you can pick music um, from your music device or you can even compose music with particular sound properties. And when you listen to that music while tasting, you can use it as seasoning to bring out to enhance sweetness, sourness, bitterness, creaminess, spiciness um, in a way that's you know, really surprising because music played over the tannoy, why would that change what I taste when I'm in a restaurant? But we recently um, published a study with one uh, chef from a restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, she made a, a spicy uh, salad, um, and we had half the diners eating the salad with one piece of music, the other half eating the same salad, but with some spicy 
uh, tracks in the background and those who were listening to the spicy music rated their um, salad as tasting just that bit spicier. So this is, again, it's a kind of sonic seasoning. I think it's exciting uh, to chefs, to mixologists, uh, to baristas, uh, but also to composers and musicians and creatives and artists who are thinking, how can we bring the senses together in new and exciting uh, ways, hopefully to enhance the experience. And maybe, ultimately, if I can find music that will um, make things taste sweeter, that might allow me to reduce the sugar in food a little bit but keep the perception in the mind of the consumer or the diner the same. And that's kind of the hope that uh, a number of researchers are now um, aiming towards. I'm speaking with Charles Spence. He is a researcher and author of the book, Gastrophysics, the New Science of Eating. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines, so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Charles, one thing that restaurants do well that we often don't pay much attention to at home is presentation, making the food look good on the plate. And I'm wondering, are there things people, if if they did this at home, if they if they understood the principles of some Mm -hmm. of that, could actually get their, you know, get the kids to eat their vegetables or 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 something? Mm -hmm. So I think that's uh, definitely a possibility. and, uh, I mean, even the restaurants themselves, if you go back to the 1960s, even near the height of French cuisine, where the chefs uh, quoted saying, you know, we just served it as it came out of the kitchen, as, as you might do at home, just plonked it on the plate with no thought to eye appeal. Um, but nowadays it's all changed, I think, especially as more and more of us, when we go out to eat, can't help but take pictures of the dish and share them on social media sites. Uh, and as that happens more and more, in the UK, I think there's 40% of diners, when they eat out, share images of the food that they have been served. That's kind of driving the chefs, uh, the restaurateurs, to more visually impressive, stunning, beautiful designs. Uh, what sort of things, when well, we work with those chefs sometimes, taking their signature dishes, putting them on the internet, putting them in science museums, and giving real people the choice to say, if you're going to this restaurant tonight, how would you like that dish served? Um, which of these two orientations or platings works best for you. And what we've found is that those chefs out there who are uh, enamored with asymmetric plating, putting all the food just on one side of the plate and leaving a big blank bit of plate with nothing on it, that will make you look seem more creative as a chef, but it won't add to people's willingness to pay. They'll actually pay a lot less, uh, in our studies at least, when food is asymmetrically plated. 
Uh, another thing that many chefs uh, are taught in culinary school is that if you've got to serve um, something like a seared scallop, say, uh, make sure you serve an odd number on the plate, not an even number. So serve them three or one, but not two or four. But when we tested that with thousands and thousands and thousands of people at the Science Museum in London, we found that people don't actually care about whether there's an odd number or an even number of things on the plate. What they more care about more is how much food it appears they're going to get to eat, and that kind of a primary driver of which plate you'll prefer. A couple of final uh, suggestions uh, that have come out of the research. One is that um, we do not like foods much if they point towards us. So imagine you've got a slice of pizza or a slice of chocolate cake. Um, if, it's the, if you orient it and serve it to somebody with a pointy end in the middle of the cake pointing towards them, they'll give that cake a lower rating than if you turn it around so it's pointing away. Uh, we think because you know, there's some evolutionary old mechanism in our heads that whenever we see angularity, we think danger, and that's transmitted to the food. And the last one that I'm sort of fond of and we're researching at the moment is to, um, if you have a long line in the plate, think of something like, I don't know, a uh, spring onion or a celery stick or a langoustine, then if you orient it, so it kind of starts on the bottom left of the plate and goes all the way up to the top right, like a kind of successful results graph, then people will like that dish more than if you serve exactly the same thing, but have it rotated so it starts down at the bottom right and ascends to the top left instead. And that's, uh, we're not quite sure why. We see it in some of Kandinsky's artwork. We see it on plating of various foods. And it may have something to do with the fact that when we see foods, if we can, if our brains can imagine eating that food, then the easier we find to imagine eating it and actually to eat it, the more we will like the food. And maybe when it goes from bottom left to top right, that just makes it easier for us as right-handers to uh, attack the plate. So is it safe to say that, that, at least at the very basic level, that plating food like you gave some thought to it rather than just plopping it on the plate makes it more appealing than just plopping it on the plate. That's right. Uh, Of course, it takes somebody some time to actually do that thoughtful stuff. But it's not just about um, being thoughtful, it turns out, because when we, in this sort of, they have this Kandinsky salad uh, that my colleague and chef Charles Michel serves that we've been testing, 31 Elements, uh, when he turns it into a replica of uh, Kandinsky's uh, painting 201 hanging in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, then it's effortful, it's beautiful, people like it, they're willing to pay more and they'll eat more. When we take those 31 elements that go into making the dish and we just line them up side by side like soldiers rather, and we serve that versus the tossed salad version, then you can see it took a lot of effort to arrange all those 31 things lined side by side, exactly spaced. It's just not very aesthetically pleasing you don't like that one as much. So I think it's, it's, it's partly about the effort, but it's also partly about how pleasing to the eye uh, the end result is. Is there any sense that people in general tend to just like the same things over and over? Are we adventurous eaters, or is everybody individual? So I guess uh, there certainly are individual differences, um, but there also are commonalities, and that's where kind of the psychology and the gastrophysics coming in, looking for the trends that uh, unite many of us. Um, and uh, I guess we differ and, uh, as individuals. Some of us are more uh, neophilic, willing to try new foods, interested in the latest food trend, fad, a regional kind of cuisine. Others are a little bit more neophobic. They sort of know what they like, and are not so keen on trying something new. 
Lastly, about the packaging, and I know you, you talk about, for example, how when Coca-Cola changed the and came out with the Christmas can, people thought they changed uh-huh. the formula when, in fact, it was just the can. So that uh-huh. clearly packaging affects our perception. That's right. Um, and I think sort of packaging is sort of the kind of the forgotten element, really. Um, it's often seen just as a means of, you know, portion control and preservation of the, of the, of the product, and nothing more than that. Maybe somewhere to plonk your your visual logo, but that's it. Um, and from our research and from that of others that are, that I um, see uh, and that's re- reviewed, I think packaging is so much more than that. It's really part of our experience of food and drink. Why so? In part because uh, the studies suggest we probably eat about a third of the stuff that we consume direct from the package, from the crisp packet, the yogurt pot, uh, the can, the bottle. And if you make bottles or cans heavier, things taste better. If you change the color of the can rather than changing the color of the drink, you can also change the taste. If you add texture to, say, a packaging, uh, we find we can bring out gingery notes in a biscuit or in a drink simply by having people feeling something rough on the packaging. Um, it can make a noise as well. We think about um, sort of the Snapple Poppers one, famous example, uh, distinctive product sound. We think about those potato chip packets. You think, why is it that potato chips, a very noisy food, comes in noisy packaging? We go back to the very start, back in the 1920s um, or 30s, when the first packaged uh, potato chips were available. Even then, they came in a noisy pack. It's not about preservation. I think it's about sort of a, an intuitive marketeer picking up that noisy foods maybe taste better with noisy packaging. It sets the expectation. It's congruent. It matches. Um, and now is something that we come to expect and should not be ignored because when we, whenever we look at it, the packaging is there and it influences us um, uh, in a way that we don't realize but is, uh, is, is a substantial influence. And now some of the bigger food and drinks companies are starting to recognize that, the importance of the packaging. Does the color of the plate that I serve my food on at home really affect whether people <laughs> like the food I'm serving them? It certainly does. Um, so, you know, you, think you can't literally taste the plate, but changing the color of the plate on which you serve food can change what people say about it. Um, sounds bizarre. Um, when we first tested this back in 2012 with um, Ferran Adria, uh, another world top chef, with his research foundation, the Elysia Foundation in Spain, uh, we served a kind of pinkish strawberry mousse to 60 people, and they had to taste it from a black plate versus from a white plate. Um, and the result, kind of amazing result that came out was that those who tasted that strawberry mousse from a white plate said it tasted 7% sweeter, 13% more flavorful, and 9% more liked than the same people eating the same food, but from a black plate instead. That was 2012. When you first get a result, you're sort of thinking, is it, is it really true? Is it a fluke? Are we, what's going on here? But since then, in the last five years, at least 30 other published studies from research groups around the world have come to much the same conclusion. The Paul Bacuse Cookery School in France, we worked with them, and they showed that plate color affected the taste of their desserts in their very fancy uh, restaurant. Um, and many other countries uh, from Far East to Newfoundland are showing the same kind of result. What will make it taste best? I mean, there isn't like a perfect plate color. I think it depends a bit on the color of the food that you are serving. And if you can enhance the contrast between the food and the background, that will look good. Porridge from a white bowl is no good. Thai green curry that's mostly white on a white plate won't look as good as if it's got a, got a high contrast black plate behind it. Um, 
You can bring out spiciness in uh, tofu by serving it from a red plate, according to work from Taiwan just out. And uh, so it goes on. The color of the plate matters. The material matters. The, even the shape matters. Round white plates are much, much sweeter than angular black plates or slates, for example. And again, this is something that might have seemed bizarre, but now is becoming uh, increasingly well-recognized uh, and, sh- and chefs are, and, um, are using the findings. But I think this maybe has more impact for us at home and for those who are serving food uh, to, say, patients in care facilities and in hospitals who very often are not eating as much as they should and where the research suggests simply by enhancing the color contrast between the food and the plate, you can see patients in hospital eating up to a third more, um, which aids their long-term recovery. It's uh, somewhat troubling to hear that we're so persuaded by such simple things. It's, it, I think we'd like to think that we're smarter or more perceptive than that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I sort of realize that uh, no matter how many of these results um, I talk about or share, somewhere in all of our minds, whether we be psychologist, food critic, chef, or just average uh, kind of consumer alike, we all think that's not how it seems to me. I really can you know, taste what's in the glass and I wouldn't be fooled by or, or, or have my judgments influenced by the music in the background. And that's kind of where the research comes in to, to kind of uh, not rely on our intuitions, but get the evidence. And from tens, hundreds, thousands of people show that this really does make a difference. Nevertheless, I, I think we'd all like to think that we're not so easily swayed. But it's certainly interesting to hear. Yeah, Charles Spence has been my guest. His book is Gastrophysics, The New Science of Eating. There's a link to his book in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. You can find that at our website, somethingyoushouldknow.net. Thanks, Charles. Thank you. Everyone shoots video now. It's as easy as can be because you've got a smartphone that shoots pretty good quality video. But there's a big difference between just pointing your phone and shooting video and taking really interesting video that people actually would want to watch. Steve Stockman is a film writer and director, and he is author of a book called How to Shoot Video That Doesn't Suck. <laughs> Hi, Steve. So, so people shoot a lot of video, and I bet a lot of it never, ever gets watched. You know, you shoot your son's soccer game because, well, that's what a good parent does. You want to take video at your son's soccer game. But nobody ever watches it because it's too long and the camera's too far away. You can't tell who anybody is. And I bet a lot of video is like that. It never gets watched. We understand it incredibly well. We've been watching video since we were babies. There's almost no one alive today who hasn't watched TV since infancy. And we understand how video is supposed to work. We comprehend the language of video but we don't speak it very well. And until the last few years, no one has asked us to speak it well. We had professionals speak it for us. We had directors who did videos. Uh, now everybody has a camera in their pocket that works better than you know what Steven Spielberg shot Jaws with. And suddenly we're asked to think about shooting video, and it turns out speaking it is more complicated than just listening to it yeah. or watching it. Well, that's an interesting point. You know, we know what video is supposed to look like when we watch it, but shooting it is a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other story. It's the difference between knowing what a great piano song sounds like and being able to play the piano. 
What are some of the uh, what are some of the basics of shooting video that maybe would help right off the bat? I think the first thing that people need to understand is that video that you watch is always done in short shots. So when you're watching video, you will see uh, in a detective show, you'll see the detective bring the suspect into the box so that they can coerce a confession. And then you'll see a shot of the suspect's handcuffed wrists. And then you'll see a shot of the two detectives who are behind the one-way glass watching to see if the suspect will crack. And the story is told in all of these short shots. Uh, What they don't do is turn the camera on, run it for 30 minutes while the actors do stuff in front of the camera, and then turn it off. That's an editing issue then. It is an editing issue and also a thinking issue. Because as soon as you realize that video is shot in short shots, you realize that no one in the universe is ever going to watch that 45 minutes of you shooting your son's soccer game where you just point the camera, let it run, and wave it back and forth. It isn't always just editing. It's also how are you thinking of the story and what is it that you actually want to show people? Yeah, because most people aren't going to edit their video. It'd be nice if they did, but they don't. And so it's really then in how they shoot it to begin with. Yes, and even... uh, even professional directors don't just turn the camera on in the morning when they get to the set and turn it off at the end of the day. They're still doing their shots intentionally, and they're only shooting as much as they actually need to because later you have to pay an editor to sit there and watch all the garbage and pick out the good stuff. The less garbage there is, the cheaper that is. So in movies and television, you know, we also don't run the camera all day. So the first thing to think about if you're shooting your own video is what do you want to shoot? Who is this story about and what is the story? You know, if it's a birthday party, are you going to focus on the subject of the birthday party? Are you going to focus on their wife? Uh, Are you going to focus on the presence? Uh, And it almost doesn't matter what decision you make. If you decide to focus on something or someone in the video you take, your videos will be way better. So... So think in terms of stories rather than, oh, I've got to get a picture of that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Now, you can make a very nice video if you think of your video as a still camera and you point your video, say you're on vacation, you point your video at uh, a beautifully composed shot and you roll it for about five seconds and then stop. And if you do that several times uh, an hour during your touring day, At the end of every day, you'll wind up with about 60 seconds of really beautiful footage. Um, And even though it's sort of random, it's going to look pretty cool if you set it to music. So that's another way to do it. Uh, But the more story that you can think of as you do it, you know, do I want to be shooting shots of my kids when I'm at Disneyland? Do I want to be shooting shots of uh, the adults in the party who are exhausted by the kids when I'm at Disneyland? Those are two different stories. Either one is going to be good if you focus on it and better than just waving your camera around, hoping it hits Mickey Mouse. Well, as you say, no one's going to watch your 45-minute video of your soccer game, but you, you don't know when your son's going to make a goal, so you've got to run the, whole, the camera the whole time because you, otherwise you'll miss, you'll always, it seems that you'll miss that moment that you wanted because you turned it off. Yeah, either that or you have to decide that that's not really what the video is about. I mean, if you think about 
your son, in five years, your son is going to be totally different. He's going to think differently. He's going to look different. He's going to have different interests. I would argue that the video that you want to be shooting about your son's soccer game is about your son and his teammates playing soccer, in which case you want to do things like show the coach, which your son will remember in five years. You want to show uh, the looks on their faces. You want to interview them about the soccer game. And you don't really want to spend your whole time glued to the screen in hopes that your son shoots a goal uh, because that keeps you from enjoying the soccer game. So think about telling a story and think about the things that you and your son are going to want to look back on five or 10 or 15 years from now and shoot those things. And don't bother with the action on the field, which, let's face it, for most eight-year-olds isn't going to be all that exciting, except for a shot or two of it, so you can remember what it was like. Well, that brings up a, a really interesting point. It seems like, like there's two kinds of people. There's people who, when something happens or they're at a special place, they pull out their camera and and that becomes the important thing, is to make sure they get a shot, a video or a photo. And then there are other people who think that if you do that, you're missing out on the experience because you're too worried about taking videos or photos. I'm the latter. I, I never think to take out my camera. I'm more interested in what's going on in the moment. And where's the balance if, that, if that's the desired thing? Where do, what, what's, what do you do about that? Well, I think this is where you, you think about what's really interesting to you. I mean, if you're going on vacation... Um, and you're going to someplace beautiful like the Grand Canyon, you could decide that what you really want to do is beautiful pictures of the Grand Canyon, and you could look for those amazing pictures and shoot some short shots of incredible Grand Canyon vistas and you know uh, beautiful camera moves, or you take your drone out there or something. And then in the times that you're not doing that, you might just enjoy the canyon. Uh, or similarly, you could decide that the story is your kid seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time and hiking down a ways into it. And you could cover that story the way a journalist would, and you would talk to your kids about what they're doing. You would get the reactions to the Grand Canyon. You would cover the preparation for hiking and what happens when you got to the bottom. And by doing that, you would get a story about your vacation on the Grand Canyon and the rest of the time, you wouldn't have to pick up your camera and you could just enjoy what's going on. So I would argue that adding story to things gives you a clue about that balance between being in the moment and being behind your video camera. That filling the frame idea, which I've heard photographers talk about as well, that people are usually way too far back from what they're shooting, that you can't tell who's in the picture or what it is exactly. Do you find that's the same problem in, in video as well? Um, people are reluctant to get close to the action because they feel, especially if they don't do this a lot, like it makes them the center of attention. And so we don't like to put our camera right in someone's face and we don't like to uh, put ourselves close to the stage when we're shooting the high school graduation. I think that if you practice, you get over that. And I think the other thing that you have to realize is if you're far away from the action, your video feels far away from the action. So you're going to feel removed from what you're doing. I always tell people to uh, don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes. 
You know, if you're shooting people's faces and you can't actually see what their eyes look like, you're missing all the emotion and the communication and the feeling of the video because you're just too far away. Since people take so much video on their phones, and now there are all these new gadgets uh, that you can attach to your phone, do you recommend any of them? Are any of them worth it? I think learning to shoot great video is like learning to ski. Um, If you are just starting out, just take what they give you and play with it for a while. You know, you don't have to have the super fancy racing skis on your first day on the mountain because all you're going to do is fall over anyway. So what I would recommend is use the iPhone that came in the box or use the Android phone that came in the box and go out and play with it and experiment with it and see if it came with any apps or if there's any free apps that a friend uses. Just try it. If you practice shooting video, you will learn what you don't like about the equipment that you have, and then you can investigate new equipment. But if you're at the point where you really can't tell the difference, just use what you got, and you'll figure it out. What about editing? Do you think uh, most people's videos are, are not worth the time uh, if, they, if they shoot them right in the first place, or will editing always improve any video? Well, editing in its simplest form, is simply cutting out the things that aren't any good. And any time you take a video and cut out the things that aren't any good, by definition, it gets better. And if it isn't a whole lot better, it's at least shorter. So it's less torturous. So I recommend editing wherever possible. However, uh, there are, as you said before, two kinds of people in the world. There are the people who will edit and the people who don't. In my work, I edit all the time, but what that really means is there are people called editors who sit in my office and uh, work on the footage that I've shot. My own wedding video is still in a box, and I haven't touched it since the wedding, which was my kids are in college now. So, um, So I would recommend if you're shooting with your iPhone that you try to shoot stuff short enough so that you don't need to add it, uh, and long enough so that you get the stuff that's really interesting. What about events like weddings and, and graduations and things, which, you know, t- tend to be, if you weren't there, it's kind of boring to watch. Is there any way to, to, to spice it up a little bit? Well, there again, I think you have to realize what people need to see and what they don't need to see. Um, at a wedding, they hand out a shot list when you sit down. I'm sorry, it's not really a shot list. It's a program, and it tells you what's about to happen. And since you know what weddings are like because they're a ritual, which means that they're pretty much the same all the time, and you have that program in your hands, if you want to shoot the wedding, you know when people are going to walk down the aisle and when they're going to kiss the bride and when the rings are going to be presented and... um, and those kinds of things that are part of every wedding. So if you plan those things and think about them for three minutes when you're sitting in your pew waiting for the wedding to start, you can decide what you're going to shoot and what you're not, and you can go up and just shoot the stuff that uh, you'll get a good shot for and that makes the difference. Again, a wedding is one of those things where you don't really have to see every moment. You just have to see the important moments or the story moments and... The rest, you can just sit back and enjoy.
now I just need to remember to do all those things. But I think that just the one thing you said about shooting in short shots will go a long way to help anybody shoot better video. Steve Stockman has been my guest. Steve is a film writer. He's a director. And he is author of the book, How to Shoot Video That Doesn't Suck. There's a link to his book on Amazon in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. And you can get that and all kinds of other things at our website, somethingyoushouldknow.net. Thanks, Steve. Sure. Thanks, Mike. How many times have you seen some ageless celebrity on television talk about how much water they drink? And all that water is what's responsible for their youthful appearance. Well, there actually isn't much research into whether or not water is good or not good for your skin. Since nobody can really make any money from water as a skin treatment, no one has ever funded any studies on that. So we really don't know if drinking water is good for your skin. However, Women's Health magazine surveyed several dermatologists to get their take on it. And it seems that the general belief is that hydrated skin does look better. Without water, the skin can look dull and wrinkles and pores appear more prominent. And that's because water plumps up the skin. However, drinking a lot of water today doesn't mean your skin will look better for years to come. The benefits are mostly in appearance, and they're temporary. In other words, as long as you drink water and your skin is hydrated, it looks better. But if you stop drinking the water, the benefits disappear quickly. Eight to ten glasses of water spread throughout the day should do the trick. That's the podcast today. I'm Mike Carruthers. Remember, you can always email me with any questions, comments, or suggestions. I love hearing from listeners. And my email address is mike at somethingyoushouldknow.net. Thanks for listening to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.